just on a, a, a humorous side note, this is actually pretty funny. One of the team members uh, on PEMI has a theory because uh, you have this kid who disappeared for two or three days and then was found on trail. Uh, I'm giving away the secret here, but he was found on trail. Yeah. And he doesn't quite... Is this theory aliens? Yes. <laughs> Alien abduction? I, you know what? would be my guess, too. He, his, because there was another big search that happened a few weeks after this, and it's the same circumstance. The guy's off trail, he's back on trail, and he has no recollection of what happened. Like, they wiped his memory. I, I like the way this, this guy's thinking. Isn't that we funny? we get him on the show. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm <laughs> I, I was right on that one the second you said he has I, this guy has a theory I was like I know what he where he's going broadcasting from the woodpecker studio in the great state of New Hampshire welcome to episode two of the sounds like a search and rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the white mountains of New Hampshire this week we are starting our introduction to New Hampshire hiking series with a discussion about the 4,000-footer list and peak bagging in the White Mountains. Just started hiking and want to set some goals for the year? We'll cover everything you need to know to get started. And for those more experienced hikers, we will share a few tips and secrets you may not know about the 4,000-footers. Later in our show, we will talk about some more recent search and rescue mishaps, and we will get into how a search and rescue actually happens from the perspective of a SAR volunteer. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right, so we're starting here. Um, I think this is going to be the new show tradition, but we gotta we gotta start everything off by talking about what we're drinking this evening. So, you get anything good? Um, it's it's about ten feet away in the fridge. It's a little Pinot Grigio. I haven't even cracked it yet. So, you're such an aristocrat with your, with your <laughs> wine drinking every night. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, I don't know. It's our Lord's specialty. <laughs> very nice very nice <laughs> and what are you drinking sir i have an ipa from castle island brewing company so it's pretty good hmm. can't complain yeah. so i think castle island is for south boston i suppose yeah i had a bad experience with ipa as a uh, adolescent <laughs> i can't oh, go yeah? back oh yeah <laughs> uh, yep unfortunately we'll cover that story at another time i guess <laughs> sure so what you been up to this week uh, I have been uh, doing a little hiking. I did do a little hiking. I was up in um, Garfield uh, with my friend Tom. We did winter hikes, so I got a winter 4,000-footer. We'll talk about the 4,000-footers in, in a little while, but mm -hmm. um, it was a nice day. It was a long hike, 13 miles or so, 12 and a half miles. Yeah, that's a long day. It's a, it's a beautiful hike, though. It is, it is. And we, um, I talked to a few people coming down. You know, We were pretty early, but there was still a lot of people heading up there. Um, early on so we we saw some people coming down and they were all saying that it was all cloud covered no views which is fine you know you can't you can't win them all but um when we got up there we were the only ones up top and we we did get some views like the clouds cleared and it opened up to owl's head and we saw franconia ridge and you know it was a, it was a nice day it was cold up there though it was definitely cold and windy yeah yeah that's awesome i um yeah. i got out um saturday uh with a friend mark lindenberg he's a crazy youtuber who makes hiking videos but we did a local bushwhack called cone mountain he's getting used to bushwhacking he's gone on maybe two or three bushwhacks but he did really well so that was a fun time a couple hours out very cool yeah very cool and didn't you weren't you didn't you do something on cannon mountain as well yes that was about a two weeks ago a week and a half ago we trained on the avalanche run at cannon mountain they were 
gracious enough to um, close off the trail for us. So later in the afternoon, we all assembled there, and uh, one of the lieutenants of the team explained crampon usage, ISAC self-arrest techniques, you know, walking in crampons and that type of thing. So it was a lot of fun. We hiked straight up to the steepest part of that trail, and we are just zooming down using the ice axes. Um, so the is Avalanche Avalanche Trail, that, that's, a, that's a trail? It is, yes. If, if you go to the tram building and go a little further down parallel to, I think it's Profile Lake, or no, not Profile, but uh, Echo Lake. Yeah, Echo Lake. There's um, an administrative building. So it, right there, you can just walk up and Avalanche is basically there. So it's a little further down from the tram. Did they teach you anything new that you didn't know about wearing crampons? Um, well, for myself, I, I'm pretty comfortable with crampons. Uh, we don't typically use them too often in the team. But in terms of the self-arrest technique, I mean, that's a whole other ballgame. That's something that's, a, I guess, a perishable skill because who, who does that? I mean, unless you're really up there mountaineering, you know, it, that's a skill that takes a lot of practice and repetition. So that's, that was completely new. Alpine mountaineer and crampons are very similar to your micro spikes and this and that. They just take a little more caution to use and uh, a little more skill. Because you can get hurt, actually. If you're sliding down a mountain fast and you dig in, dig in one of those crampons, you're going to flip. So there's different concerns with actual crampons. Yeah, I don't wear crampons that frequently. There's, there was like three or four winters ago that was like some crazy ice flows in the presidentials and I use crampons quite a bit but yeah. the first time I ever wore them I, I did sort of the classic like winter hiking mistake and I stepped off the, the pack trail and I went down into my hip and I had oh, crampons yeah. in and I was deep deep snow and foolishly I I tried to sort of like pry my way out with my feet mm-hmm. and I ended up slicing my calf with with one of the crampons so it's Oh, it's super easy to do. It was a learning experience. I was bleeding for the whole trip, but um, you learn not to do that ever again. (laughs) Yeah, crazy. Anyway, well, that's good. That's good that we both got out, but um, I guess we move into our first segment here, um, which is going to be talking about the 4,000-footer list. Last week, we we talked about Franconia Ridge, gave us a good chance to get kind of our feet wet in the podcast game. Yep. Uh, now we're going to get into a series we're calling Intro to New Hampshire Hiking. This will be a series of episodes where we will cover a lot of basic info that hikers and the whites learn as they pursue hiking goals. A lot of what we'll talk about has a unique lingo that over time you tend to take for granted. But given we expect we will have a mix of experience among our listeners, we want to take a little time to break down some common terms for people who may not be familiar with hiking culture. Yeah, and I can quickly run down some of these the the crazy language of hiking and definitely stop cut in if you if you have any thoughts on on some of these things but you know if if you're not a hiker or you're just getting into it some of these things may not be familiar but um i've got a got a list here that i'm going to go through so first one is the white mountain guide so you'll hear us talk about the white mountain guide quite a bit and it's basically it's a book that's published by um, the Appalachian Mountain Club that covers the 652 trails that are in the White Mountains. And it also comes with a series of, of maps. And it's, it's basically the Bible of hiking when it comes to New Hampshire. So you'll hear us talk about the White Mountain Guide. It, it, it gives trail descriptions. I just want to mention something. Um, Steve Smith uh, is actually on Pemi Search and Rescue. 
He's one of the founding members, so I get to see him quite a bit. And I was actually talking to him there, getting ready to release a new edition. So he's busy editing, and <laughs> a new one's coming. Nice. That'll be what thirty thirty one. Um. Yeah, I'm not quite sure actually. They, let me see. Which I have. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, there's, yeah, I have thirty, so it's it's got to be thirty one. Okay. I just yeah, bought it. So. Twenty nine thirty. Yeah, you're right. Yep, thirty one. Yeah, yeah. So Steve Smith, he he owns the the Mountain Wanderer bookstore in Lincoln, New Hampshire. So definitely pop in there and buy one of his books. He's a big influencer in the the hiking community, an important guy that's done a lot of great work for for hiking around the area. So yeah. So again, you'll hear us talk about the White Mountain Guide. It's got trail descriptions. It's got hiking recommendations. It ranks the hikes by um, beginner, moderate, strenuous hikes. It also provides a summary of important information like safety and etiquette and things like that. So always talk about the White Mountain Guide. You know, the other things on my list here is, you know, you've got trails, which basically um, that's what we all hike on. It's a series and network of trails throughout the White Mountains that we all basically get familiar with as, as you continue on your hiking journey. Stomp had just talked about bushwhacking. That's basically when you go out in the wilderness without utilizing a trail, which is a whole different set of skills that you need. When you are out there navigating, you'll see um, basically there's two main things that you'll, three, three main things that you'll navigate by, which are trail signs, which are nice wooden signs with trail names on them. You'll have blazes, which are painted marks that are typically on trees or rocks that you'll follow. And then there's what we call cairns. Did I, I pronounce that correctly? I can never, I never yeah, know I believe if I so. pronounce that. Yeah, cairn. Yeah, so yeah, so those are big stacked rocks that mark the trail. Not so. ca- not Karen, but Karen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Karen's. I can never really pronounce it correctly. So hopefully, maybe some of the listeners will correct me if I pronounce it incorrectly. But um, don't be a Karen. And then we, yeah, yeah, it'll probably be a Karen that corrects me, right? Um, then we've got the other things that we'll talk about is like uh, traverses. So you'll hear us say like, oh, we're going to do a traverse. And basically there's two types of hikes. There's what we would call an out and back where you start in one place, you go to a peak or you go on a trail and then you come back and a situation where you have a traverse that's usually where you'll have two people hiking. You'll, you'll do a, what we call a car spot. So you'll drop your car off at one place. You'll drive to the trailhead and then you'll hike across from one point to another. You know, we'll, we'll also call that a point to point. And then sometimes you can even utilize like a lot of people will use like different shuttle services and things like that. Stomp lives up in the area. He can pick you up if you need, need a, oh, yeah. Yeah. a shuttle. <laughs> yeah. And then I think last week we talked a little bit about this, but, um, you know, we'll have there's different characteristics of the mountains. You know, you have forest regions, you'll have wilderness regions. A lot of the mountains have what we call slides, which are big rock slides that you can climb up. You'll hear us mention river crossings. And then you'll also hear us talk about above tree line and below tree line. And I think, what is it? Tree line usually, what's it like 3,500 feet, 4,000 feet? You usually go above tree line? Around here, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a safe estimate. Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times you'll, you'll hear us talking about like, oh, you know, I was below tree line if it's like a lower peak and most of the 4,000 footers are above tree line, but there's a few that, that don't have any views. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. We'll also talk about types of hikers. What, what type of hiker would you say you are, Stomp? At the moment, a lazy hiker. 
Yeah. That's, that's about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm definitely yeah. a day hiker. I, you know, occasionally I like to backpack overnight, but mostly just out for day hikes. I try to hit harder to reach peaks in, you know, a modest amount of time and call it a day and head home for sure. How about you? Yeah, I'd say the same day hiker. Um, I do a little bit of what we call backpacking. So when you say backpacking, that just means that you're you're going overnight. So I'll usually do like a weekend backpacking trip. And then you do have sort of the more hardcore overnight aspects of hiking where you'll have through hikers, which are typically people that are doing like the Appalachian Trail or the Long Trail or Pacific Crest Trail. And then then they try to go from like the beginning of the trail to the end. Then you'll also have section hikers, which do, they, they'll typically do like longer sections of these these trails, like the Appalachian Trail, but they'll go out for a week or two weeks or even a month uh, sometimes. So yeah, so there's a lot of language. I'm sure we didn't cover everything. I don't know if there's, I, I, next thing I'm going to get into is sort of the, the gamification of hiking, but Stomp, I don't know, did I, did I miss any big, big uh, terms here? Not that I can think of offhand, but uh, they may come up as we chat. We are going to get into, in a moment, we're going to talk about what we call the 4,000-footer list. But just to sort of set the ground for this, hiking in New England, and um, I, I don't know how big it is out on the West Coast or hiking in the Northeast, we, we've sort of gamified or you know we've made games out of how to climb these mountains. And I think a lot of what happened was, and how this came about was in the you know, the early days, there was a need to sort of spread people out. So you'll you'll hear a variety of different what we call hiking games or hiking pursuits where, you know, we've mentioned this, but we're, I think me and Stomp are both basically like peak baggers where we'll focus on a particular list of mountains that exist and you try to hike each mountain so that you basically check off a list and then you can complete that list by uh, summiting each mountain on the list. So the 4,000 footers are one list inside the the White Mountains. There's a few other lists that we'll talk about in future weeks. But basically, anytime someone says, I'm a peak bagger, typically what you will, you can assume from that is that they are pursuing a, a list of hikes. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other ga- big games that you'll have are like variations on this peak bagging idea where you know, there's an activity called gridding, which is basically taking the 4,000-footer list. And the goal of completing the 4,000-footer list is to just hike all 48 4,000-footers. But the grid takes it to another level where they'll say, we want you to hike all 48 peaks every month of the year. So you actually end up doing 576 peaks in that in that list to be a grid person. And then they, some people even take it even more extreme than that. Insane. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and seeing stuff. Lot of and then, time. yeah, exactly. And then the last bit is um, what we call uh, the last game, I guess, what you would call is what we call redlining, which is basically trying to hike all of the trails in a particular area. So most people that do redlining are focusing on trying to complete all the trails in the White Mountain Guide. And it's typically done over years and years and years. So I actually tallied up my redline. At this point, I'm around 40%, which I'm pretty proud of, considering I've been doing this for about eight years. Stomp, I'm going to guess you haven't tallied you yourself up, have you? Oh, my red line? No, no, no clue. No. no, that's a little overambitious for me, for sure. I mean, you're, you're chasing after little spurs and things, and that's just... 
That's a bit much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy with 40%. I'm sure that I'll get to more, but I don't think that I will ever complete that. Yeah. It's too many other fun things to do. Oh, sure. Absolutely. The Appalachian Mountain Club basically manages the 4,000-footer list. Uh, The 4,000-footers are basically any mountain within the White Mountain National Forest that's over 4,000 feet. The AMC sets the rules for what qualifies, and um, one of the rules is that each peak has to have a 200-foot prominence apart from its neighbor. There are 48, with the tallest being Mount Washington. That's about 6,288 feet, and the shortest height is Mount Tecumseh. That's number 48 at 4,003 feet. Yet the AMC actually has a 4,000-footer committee, which hosts a dinner every year, and they give awards to people that complete the list in different variations, you know, such as the Winter 48, and you get a nice patch. I have my patch, and Mike, I think you might get a patch pretty soon too, right? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I still have um, a few more hikes to do, so I'm thinking later, later this summer I will... I'll complete it, but I don't know if I'll, I may not apply for the patch. I don't, uh, we'll see. Oh, you gotta, I mean, mine's hanging on the wall up in the bedroom. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's an yeah, accomplishment. It's a nice, nice resume discussion, uh, discussion point too, right? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Now, there are different mountain ranges within the White Mountain National Forest, and uh, these 48 mountains are scattered amongst these ranges. So there are several ranges, the Carter Mariah Range, Franconia Ridge, which we talked about, that would include Liberty, Mount Flume, and several others. The Kinsman Range, the Northern Ranges. The Northern Ranges, Mike, that, that's Cabot and Wombach, if I remember correctly. Correct. I should point out that, you know, there's there's 48 peaks that are in the 4,000-footer list, but that does not mean that you have to do 48 individual hikes in order to complete the list. You are able to string together hikes across two or three peaks in a day and sometimes even more. So in theory, you know, you can do 48 individual hikes to to complete the list, but in most cases people are typically doing, you know, 30 to 35 hikes and they're combining peaks as they mm. go. Yeah, that's a great point for sure. Just to finish up on a couple other ranges, I mean, the Presidential Range has several, and that's that's a pretty advanced hike for sure. And again, you can pick them off one at a time or, or time together. Some people go after the big enchilada and do the whole entire range, which is quite a feat. The Pemby's massive. There are probably a dozen or more peaks in that area. The Twins, North Twin, South Twin, that's the northern end of the Pemby. The Sandwich Range, which extends all the way from the eastern side of the state over by Conway, over towards Sandwich, and actually Thornton as well. And uh, the Willie Range, that's in the Crawford Notch area. And just a, a final point about difficulty. I mean, some of the easier ones, if you're a new hiker, you might want to start out with something like Mount Tecumseh, one of the shorter ones, or Hale, or, or Wombeck, Garfield. They're a little bit easier. Some of the more moderate ones, maybe the Kinsmans or the Osceolas, the Wildcats get a little more advanced. Uh, Lincoln Lafayette is probably moderate to advanced. So there are lots of options, but if you're just starting out, you want to do some research about which one is the best to start with. Yeah, we should probably also mention that um, there are what I would say is um, a number of sort of stinkers or not great view hikes. You've got you know, Mount Zeeland, <laughs> you've got Mount Tom, you've got Galehead that, that come to mind, East Osceola, is another one. So there's a number of peaks where there's not views on the mountains, but 
typically you can combine those peaks with other viewpoints to make the, the hike memorable. But you know, nobody is going out to Zealand on their own without going to check out uh, some of the other views close by. So just don't get too hyped up for the views because there are a number of them that are kind of disappointing. Mm. Yeah, for sure. But it's not about the views, Mike. Come on. It is for me. It is for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then what do you, what about you? Like, so when you were doing the 4,000 footer, like I, I, I've got a whole system where I track all my hikes, mm -hmm. but uh, wh what did you do to track everything? Pencil and paper? I did. Yeah. That? You know, on the 4,000 footer website I, by AMC, there's a basic checklist. So my wife and I downloaded that list and we were just checking them off and making little notes. And that's actually the list that you can send into the AMC when you're ready to get your, your patch and go to the dinner. So it's really a cool thing. So yeah, we photocopied it and just sent the original in the mail. <laughs> oh, that's too basic for me. Oh, I, yeah. I have a very advanced system <laughs> where I've got the, I mean, I have the list, which is an Excel sheet. That's and awesome. then I have like, I got a whole thing. So I've got my Garmin, which is a watch. So I basically set my GPS on every hike. Uh -huh. And then, you know, when I finish the hike, I save it on my Garmin. It then imports my data to um, Strava, which is a tracking website. Mm. And then I then get the basically the whole elevation and the time and the speed and my heart rate and all this crazy data. You know, I basically name it and I have like a naming convention. So I know it was a 4,000 footer. And then I'm able to basically do a search on, um, you know, all the completed hikes. And then I just basically, you know, in Excel, I do check off the, the hikes that are done. But I have a whole system. So I think a lot of people that come from, come, that get into hiking tend to have a sort of a competitive nature. And they look at the 4,000 footer list as something like that they can, you know, they can be a little competitive about. But mm -hmm. the one thing that I, the thing I will say about that is that over time you will come to realize that speed doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how fast you get up and down the mountain. All that matters is that you don't end up as a star on this podcast, but because you needed a search and rescue. <laughs> you, know, you, you just need to be able to get up and down. It doesn't matter how fast you are. You know, it's not a competition. It's basically a journey where you're basically proving it to yourself um, and not to anybody else. So well, I got to make I can, a note about that. Yeah. The AMC will check to make sure that you did these hikes. So you're like their dream, dream hiker. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I'll be like, I, I can prove it. I swear. Yeah. I mean, they'll look at your list and make sure that it adds up and makes sense. And you, you know, you didn't do 30 hikes in a day and bang out the whole thing in a month or something. So they're, they're looking and they will send the, a letter back saying, hey, what about this? What about that? So yeah, Mike, that's over the top, but they shouldn't bug you. Yeah, I do. I expect I'll get called out because I did um, Musalaki and Tecumseh in one day. Mm. I think I, I, I had a lunch break and then I went and did Tecumseh. So yeah, uh, but I'm ready. I have my data. I'm going to prove it. That's awesome. Yeah, we never had an yeah, issue yeah. with ours, but yeah. Yeah, but like I said, I came from a very sort of competitive background. I was a runner in triathlons, and uh, you know, I wasn't like a, a top top runner, but I was competitive enough. And that was one of the things I kind of had to learn about hiking is that it it doesn't nobody nobody really cares how fast you are when you get up and down the mountain. It's just about getting home safely and enjoying the views. And you know, th this four thousand footer, it's it's a milestone 
that you can target and it's a great milestone because it gets you out to a variety of different places and you really get to know sort of the, the personality of the White Mountains um, as a whole by doing something like this. So I think it's a great, great goal for people and it's a realistic goal. Like it, you don't have to be a super athlete to do this. You know, there's 99% of the people out there are, you know, average at best and they, you know, it's just walking, it's walking uphill basically. So it's not that hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So speaking of walking, um, how do you hike these? Can you ride a bike? No, no. So that's another rule is there's no bike riding. So you basically, in order to quali- for it to qualify for a 4,000-footer hike, it needs to be from the trailhead uh, back to your car using your feet. Uh, the only exception to that is in the winter, you can ski and that does count for the 4,000-footer list, but no bikes. So there's a couple of sections where you can like mountain bike um, into the into the wilderness sections, but the, those do not count as hikes if you if you do that. So gotcha. Okay, yeah, yeah. makes sense. You want to talk about uh, some etiquettes and some some parking stuff and sure and how to behave on trail? Yeah, all of the 4,000 footers are basically have trailhead parking lots, and a big pet peeve is people that don't park properly. Basically, you want to pull straight into the lot and don't parallel park. They're tight to begin with, and space disappears quick especially these days where people are so into hiking and the trails are just getting overrun yeah just don't park like an idiot (laughs) and especially if you're from massachusetts because uh i've seen a few mass people that they'll pull in and like there's nobody in the parking lot and you know they'll parallel park inadvertently and they'll take up three spaces and people will get angry so just park like a normal human being pull in you you'll be fine yeah definitely each trailhead will have generally a booth to pay for the day. Nice, nice. What about uh, what about mask rules for hiking with COVID now? This could change at any time. I mean, the CDC today, this is what, the 8th of March, uh, is changing rules up. So who knows what's going to happen. But currently in New Hampshire, uh, masks are mandated by the governor if you are unable, whether indoors or outdoors, to maintain six feet. So that's essentially it. So, you know, on the trail, that's possible that you may not be able to keep that six foot. So just have a mask with you, be polite, that type of thing. Yeah. And I I typically, I've been, I mean, I've been hiking through COVID most of the time. I I took a couple of months off, but for the most part, if, if I can step off trail without doing any damage, you know, if I'm below tree line or something like that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll usually wear a bandana around my neck. But a lot of times if I can just step off trail, keep away from somebody, um, I'll just let them pass and, and be done with it. So it's not a big deal. Nobody's, I haven't seen anybody yelling or screaming or going crazy about masks. But for the most part, people are pretty conscientious about it. Yeah. You know, I've seen a lot, I call them a mini, mini bushwhack. So people will come down the trail and jump off trail by like 20, 30 feet. That's probably yeah, excessive, yeah, yeah. but if you have to and it's tight, then you can move over a little bit and let people pass. Yeah. Um, well, what about, so that's actually a good, good transition is uh, when you are passing people, you know, when uh, COVID's a little bit different now, but like in, in normal times, COVID's going to go away soon. So when you're when you're ascending or descending and you go past a hiker, what, what are some of the rules there? People that are ascending a trail going up have the right of way. There's absolutely nothing more annoying than folks that don't understand that and just come plowing down the trail as you're suffering, sweating, and, you know, working your way up. 
So that's the basic rule, and um, spread the word on that one because a lot of people don't understand that one. Yeah, well, I'd like to apologize for the last seven years because I learned <laughs> that one like last year, but I think for the first seven years of my hiking experience, I really didn't pay much attention to that one. So sorry, Stomp. <laughs> well, I think there's a, I hate to say it, but there's a paucity of um, common sense out there right now. Here's a, here's a great example. We have a rescue. You have 20 plus people all dressed in slime green search and rescue shirts and people don't get out of the way and move and or or even worse they're like oh that must be a boy scout troop oh yeah it's crazy they have no clue what's going on or you're carrying somebody in a rescue litter and they demand to go around you or bypass you or hey can you guys wait so we can go past you like no this is a active rescue you're gonna get off the trail and wait it's unbelievable people are just oh yeah, frustrating I'm sure you've uh, well we'll cover some good stories in the future about that i'm sure um yeah so that's another good transition so we got to talk a little bit about safety here so sure. we'll, we'll do a deeper dive on this stuff stomp later but what i would say about safety in relation to the four thousand footers is again like go back to the white mountain guide in the beginning of the book there's two things there's basically a hiker responsibility code which basically says you need to be self-sufficient and prepared for all conditions in the wilderness. And then there's also a section that covers what to carry and what to wear. That is where I would start. So if you're a new hiker and you're interested in doing the 4,000 footer list, you know, we've given you a good background here around what it is and, you know, at a high level, what to expect, but really get that white mountain guide, read about the hiker responsibility code, and then read about what to carry and what to wear. It has a list of what we call the 10 essentials, which are safety essentials that you'll need to bring with you on all hikes. Yeah. And um, just, you know, make yourself familiar with the safety basics. Because again, the last thing you want to do is become a star on a segment of this show. Right. Because we do cover a lot of search and rescue events and, you know, you don't want to be on here. You just want to listen to us. Speaking of safety, I mean, this is the confessional now. Can you tell me one big mistake you've made? I've got a bunch. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've done a lot of dumb things, but I would say probably for me, solo hiking without having a, um, a sleeping bag is probably the biggest thing that I've done where, you know, I just wasn't prepared to be out overnight if something ever happened. So uh, I've learned over time not to do that, but that's definitely something that I did early on in my my hiking days when I got into winter hiking is I would go out and do a solo and I would have, um, you know, no sleeping bag and no, a lot of times no pad either. So mm. if, if I ever hurt myself and I had to sit down in the snow, I'd be, I'd be screwed. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to say one of the biggest lessons I learned was to always double check what's in your pack. You know, you think you have everything, but just, just check one more time before you hit the trail. <laughs> I was on a, a long bushwhack and I had sort of like um, those thermal running trail runner type of pants. And um, when I got above tree line, I went into my pack to grab my snow pants to warm up and my snow pants weren't there. So that was a bad scene. I was cramping up and I was getting really nervous and it was actually getting hard to walk and I was way the hell up there. So yeah, bad, bad time. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. I thought you were going to tell the story about the beer spray accident, but we'll, we'll hold that one. We're going to hold that one. But just a quick preview. We had an accident with a can of beer spray that um, we'll talk about in a future episode. But all right. So let's wrap up the 4,000 footers here. So the last thing that I think we want to talk about here is where to start. So wh- wh- what mountain would you hike first? If you, you know, you always get this question like, oh, I want to do the 4,000 footers. Where should I start? Mm. I think there are a lot of great options, but uh, pick a shorter mountain with a, an amazing view and that's that's always great to do say the southern end of the presidential range you know mount jackson that yeah type of yeah thing. and i was actually going to say um i always tell people so jackson's a good one yeah but i always say mount pierce just because it's uh, the crawford path is a little bit um of a easier climb than than jackson but either one of those two are great options because the the distance isn't crazy and the views are unbe- unbelievable sure or even eisenhower i mean it seems like that southern prezi is a great place to start yeah, yeah, I agree. That's always where I tell people to to go. Well, honestly, I'll t- a lot of times I'll tell people that don't have any experience to like do something that's not on the four thousand footer list. But if you're if you're ready and you want to pick one that's going to be your first, then I think Jackson and Pierce are good options. Yeah, so. agreed. We've covered the four thousand footer list, so uh, you want to get into some recent search and rescue calls here, Stomp? Sure. Let's talk about one over on the Tamworth side or the mm-hmm. eastern side of the state. It's a very popular, but unfortunately, a very common place for rescue calls. This is Mount Mount Chikora? This is Mount Chikora. On January 30th, several hikers uh, got into trouble, uh, essentially. They went up the Champney Falls Trail, and they simply took a wrong turn off the Beeline Trail during their descent. Several of the members were overcome by cold and fatigue. One of them was able to hike out and call for assistance so basically rescue crews met up with the members on the bowls trail got them warmed up and (laughs) out so there's like five or six people in this group right yeah from massachusetts cambridge somerville a couple out of staters from new york and uh, new mexico actually yeah yeah but because of that uh that error their transportation they were 20 20 miles away from their cars so instead of them going back, they kept going uh, over the other side of the mountain, it sounds like. Yep, yeah. And uh, the fishing game report here really stresses that in winter you have to be prepared. One in the wrong direction can have catastrophic consequences. And it's really true. I mean, even a hike you may think is simple, all it takes is one error. And if you don't have a plan B or you don't have that special thing in your pack, you could get in big trouble. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Like, I... <laughs> What was there, seven people in this group? Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 me and you, I think, are probably the—I mean, we hike a lot together, Stomp, so I think we're both pretty much like four people is about the max that I'll, I'll go out with. But I just—I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be in a group that large. I'm sure that there was sort of varying levels of fitness and, and speed, and then they're having trouble navigating— and then they're going onto a trail that they're not supposed to be, or they're not planning to be on. And then I just wonder what the group dynamic is once they really start to panic. Like, who, you know, who takes over as the lead and whether or not they start getting on each other about, you know, we made the wrong decision oh, and this is all your fault. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it can get messy for sure. <laughs> I would think so. I would think so. So, I mean, I just, I, I see big groups all the time, but I just don't, um, I'm not a fan of the idea of going out in the woods with seven or eight people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, no, thanks. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> they'll they'll learn. But um, hypothermia is scary, though. It can it, once you stop moving, and if you don't understand that the need to move to warm your body up in the winter is so critical, if you have somebody that doesn't understand that, or they're incapable, or they're refusing to move, and you don't have the right gear and equipment, which my guess is that they probably didn't because they 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 panicked and needed a rescue, then it it can be a scary thing. Yeah. Yep. I can tell you that so. for a fact. <laughs> oh, and it kills me they're from Massachusetts. We always hear like, oh, Massachusetts people are always getting in trouble up in New Hampshire, which it's somewhat true, but there's plenty of other states that are getting in trouble up here in New Hampshire as well. Mm, absolutely. You know, moving on to the second event. This happened in early February. A skier was planning, oh, to, yeah. was planning to ski either the Ammanusik Ravine or the Monroe Brook Drainage which if you're familiar with the Cog Railroad, those drainages approximate to that area that lead up to the summit, very steep, very dangerous, high avalanche risk. This individual apparently did not show up on Tuesday and his, you know, his family or friends filed a missing person report. So that prompted a search for his vehicle that night and they were unsuccessful finding his car. Apparently the next morning, they did discover his car within the Amanusa Ravine parking lot. At that point, rescue teams assembled with fishing game, and they were, I believe they were led with Mountain Rescue Services and AVSAR, which is Androscoggin Valley Search and Rescue. They scoured both of the drainages, placing all the rescuers at risk of avalanche as well approximately at 4.30 p.m., they discovered an avalanche beacon signal, which would indicate where this person was. And unfortunately... Do you know how that works? Is that like, do you have to be within a certain distance of the beacon to to pick it up, I'm assuming? Yeah, you do. Yeah, especially if it's under (laughs) several feet of snow. Um, Well, certainly in this case, that was the case because they didn't know where he was until they were right on top of him. So wow. they do have a limited uh, broadcast range. Okay. So they, they spent several hours until they got him. Uh, but 13 feet of snow, this individual was covered in. So the team spent hours digging out the body, basically got back down around 9 p.m. that night. So it's a, it's a weird story. It's a, it's a tragedy. This guy was apparently experienced, and there was a high risk for avalanche, but decided to go anyway. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's an interesting area. You don't really hear most of the people that get in trouble skiing on Mount Washington are on the Tuckerman Ravine side and not on Ammanusik. But I can tell you from, I mean, I've been up there. I hike Washington from that direction every year. Mm. Matter of fact, I'm probably going up in a, in a couple of weeks. But um, last year I didn't summit because we just, we weren't feeling it. You know, time was running out and we decided to bail on the summit after we got up to Lake of the Clouds and we cut across the, we were coming down the cog. So we cut across the West side trail, which basically goes right along the top edge of the Ammanusik ravine. And even parts of the West side trail are a little like sketchy when it comes to feeling like, you know, this could be an avalanche um, risk when you're going across it, even though it, it realistically, it's not, not that bad compared to some other areas, but it's still like looking down into that ravine. The idea of skiing down there mm-hmm. just seems crazy to me. Yeah. So, but he must've, he must've done the calculation and figured well, I'm going to go for it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it just didn't work out, unfortunately. 
Yeah, yeah, that's crazy though. Thirteen feet of snow is unfathomable. Must have been must have been multiple avalanches, I would guess. Yeah, so the rescues unfortunately this year have been uh, busier than we've seen in the last two years. So um, we'll have more search and rescue news in future episodes. Uh, we're trying to spread out spread them out a little bit, but there, it's been a very busy winter, unfortunately, for uh, for search and rescue. But uh, any other thoughts on these these two cases? comes down to being prepared and making the right decisions. You know, on the Chikora event, I suppose they could have not made that wrong turn if they had had a map, done some research prior. Yeah, I mean, that that just seems like they just didn't know where they were going. I mean, it's... It, Chikora's got a lot of trails, but it's not that confusing. Like, you just got to remember to go back the way you came. Right. In reference to the avalanche, I mean, the warnings were pretty pretty stern, so that's a tough call. I mean, you, when you yeah. when you butt experience up against, you know, the risk, it's just, it's always a tough individual call. Yeah, yeah, and he certainly. I mean, I read a little bit about this guy, and he certainly had um, probably as much experience in backcountry skiing than anybody you're going to see uh, in this area. So, you know, sometimes, like you said, like you, people that have a lot of experience, they. They have a little bit more um, appetite for risk, and unfortunately, this one didn't go well. All right, so I think we're going to transition into our next segment, which is um, we, we talked about uh, Northwoods Law a little bit at the beginning before the opening. I was binging Northwoods Law a little bit in the last week or two, but um, I <laughs> wanted to stop, get into a discussion about, you know, we're calling this the anatomy of a search and rescue call. And and this, uh, the topic I want to discuss here is a, it was covered in an episode of Northwoods Law Stomp was featured prominently as one of the search and rescue people on the on the particular episode that we're going to talk about. But basically, this was a rescue on uh, Mount Musalaki, and this involved a student that was hiking as part of the Dartmouth Outing Club. It was like a two or three day rescue that turned out well. But I want to walk the audience through this and have you talk a little bit about the experience of dealing with a rescue that lasts for more than a day dealing with a scenario where you've got a lost hiker and you've got to really, you know, comb the entire mountain. And then I want to talk a little bit about what it's like to be on Northwoods Law and what that dynamic's about. Mm. Yeah, that was a that was a an amazing weekend. Mother's Day weekend of all weekends too. You, you this woman loses her son on the side of a mountain. The outing group decided to change their plans from, you know, climbing a 2000-foot mountain to a 5,000-foot mountain, Mount Musalak. A lot of these kids weren't really prepared. They were new hikers, not you know really skilled at hiking or the outdoors, really. It was a course that was designed to get these kids some PE, physical education credits, for their graduation. They went up the eastern side of Musalak early that morning, Saturday morning, uh, Mother's Day weekend, got up to about 3,000 feet, this is early, 8, 8.30 in the morning. Okay. But the problem is he turned around without anybody with him. So he went back down the trail and just walked right off the trail and disappeared for two and a half, three days. Yeah. Wow. You know, and I was just talking about this decor thing about like being in a group of like seven or eight people. When you're in a group like that, like I'm not a fan of these big groups, but regardless of the size of the group, whether it's two people or 15 people, like you just, the cardinal rule of hiking is you never let somebody leave on their own like that. Yeah, never. 
especially a new beginner, because the trails are funny. They have these little drainages that can lead off to the sides, the left or the right of the trail, and they look just like a trail. So people just wander right down them and get lost. It happens all the time. Yep, yeah. And it's like, it's one of those things where the more you hike, the more you realize that, oh, uh, you know, you have a little, you develop a sixth sense where you realize like, okay, I just went off trail, I got to stop. Let me look around. Let me find that blaze. Let me find that the sign of a trail. And if you don't have that experience, it's very easy, like you said. You know, you can just walk right down a little little drainage area and turn around. Next thing you know, you're like, "Where am I?" Yeah, that was an amazing day because we had a statewide agency training for all the search and rescue groups that entire day uh, in Franconia, and then mid afternoon we had a rescue, an actual rescue of an injured person on Welch Dickey. So, you know, we're all wiped out and tired. And then um, I believe conservation officers found out about him being missing at about 9 p.m. So this guy okay. was lost in the woods for the entire day. So if he's moving, he could Did have they, been anywhere. They didn't call earlier? They didn't call earlier? According to the report I have in front of me, just as a refresher, it says 9 p.m. They were notified oh. about his disappearance at 9 p.m. Got it. So then he was hiking with them in the morning, turned around, and then it basically took the group that had they had no idea he was gone, gone and summited. They had no idea he had made it back, and then they finally did the math and figured out, like, oh no, this guy's missing. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and wow. Yeah. Can you imagine? Almost almost twelve hours later. Yeah. So that really could put somebody anywhere on that mountain. You know, whether yeah. they stayed put or they kept moving. You know, the way that the anatomy of that mountain works, you have this giant lodge at the base, but there's a huge river. So this person could have theoretically walked along a river straight down to Warren or Wentworth, which is, you know, several miles down. So he yeah, could have been yeah. anywhere. Wow. So the call comes in at like nine o'clock at night. What time do, do you, how long does it typically take you guys to stage a crew to get ready to start actually doing searches then? Pretty quickly. We were there within an hour because we were already geared up dressed ready to go sure we were a little tired but we were en route pretty quick it depends on the circumstances there are cases where they may say um you know what let's just wait till the morning when it's light in this mm -hmm. case when you have an unprepared student in early spring conditions which were in the mid to low 30s it was immediately yeah let's get that's going. hypothermic yeah that's hypothermia yeah. territory there when a search is being formed they will send out rescuers pretty much immediately to do what they call a hasty search, which is a really fast-paced trail search where you're on the trails, most obvious areas uh, that you may find somebody. And while the search is being formed, rescuers are out covering all those areas, you know, fields, decision points between trail junctions, that type of thing the obvious places. So we ruled those out really quickly. The actual line searches where you have a you know a line of say 20 to 50 people in a row just scouring mm -hmm. across the woods, that took shape overnight and took place the next day, Sunday morning. Now, how frequently do you guys do those line searches at nighttime? Because I, my impression is, is that a lot of times you, you just will wait till the morning when you have sunlight because it's it's just as dangerous to like have a, have a search and rescue person get lost or injured Absolutely. at night. Right? Yeah, we're always looking out for ourselves too. You don't want to put the re rescuers at risk. So in this case, the search took place the next morning. But again, there were, there were several teams on the mountain overnight until sunrise, scouring the Baker River for several miles, drainages 
from that 3,000 foot mark all the way down in spring conditions. I mean, really brutal conditions for the teams. That was not an easy night. Wow. Now, who's who's calling all the shots? Like, are you? Is it the the Pemi volunteer crew that has like a leader that's calling it, or are you taking all your lead from the the fishing game people? Fishing game is in charge of all search and rescues in the state of New Hampshire, so we take our orders from them. And generally, when we go out, you know, on a on a line search itself, there's generally a commanding officer with us. When it's a hasty search, they may send us out uh, by ourselves. We have been on searches where they would send us into some really remote, difficult drainages. Pemi's known for handling a lot of the really difficult uh, areas of the whites. So it's not surprising that they would send us into some really crazy spots. But yeah, fishing game calls the shots. The commanding officers, in this case, it was Sergeant Dakey and Mark Ober, if I remember correctly. Um, They were at command. They had a command post set up in the Ravine Lodge. They came up with the plan. And of course, there were others like uh, Lieutenant Jim Neeland and our president from PEMI, Alan Clark, who were contributing to the structure of the search and the the strategy that they were going to employ over the few days. And how many total volunteers do you think were were on this one? Uh, About 50 total. You're talking about three teams, well, four teams. You had New England K-9, Upper Valley Wilderness Response Team, PEMI, Lakes Region, which was fresh. They were fresh. I think that was their first year in action. So you had Army National Guard helicopters. You had Dartmouth helicopters. I mean, this was all out looking for this one student over three days. So 50 plus. Northwoods Law is there. Like what, what's different when they're around and, and filming? Are you, are you jumping in front of the camera trying to get as much face time as you possibly can? Initially, it was sort of like that, like, oh, wow, cool. I'm on TV. This is great. You know, try to get a little FaceTime or whatever. Um, Not so much anymore. And initially, it's a shock. You know, like, what? What's this camera doing here? Those guys showed up on Sunday the next morning and started filming the line searches, as you would see in that episode on Northwood's Law. They're more or less extensions of the team. Now, they're very subtle and discreet about how they set up and how they interact with us. I mean, they never really bother us at all or or get in the way of our activities great people it's a a good show i think they do a good job and it's it's a realistic portrayal of what actually happened the way they line it all up and all that um and yeah no it's it was interesting to watch the show and they they definitely captured the pace of of the rescue i mean one of the things i noticed is like i I would assume that a lot of times when you're going on rescues like you kind of know where the person is it's just a matter of getting to them and then you're a lot of times you're just carrying them out in a missing person like this it's kind of rare from what i've what i've seen for searches where you know you'll you'll be looking for somebody for this long so i have to imagine like as you guys were you you did the night search and then you're going most of the day Mm -hmm. and there was no sign of him anywhere yeah so what goes through your head like what are you guys talking about where you're like wow this is we've looked everywhere and we don't see him what 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 could possibly be going on (laughs) yeah we we still speculate about that i mean from what i experienced we scoured that side of the mountain we actually crisscrossed other teams footprints and we would stop the line search and say hey i have a footprint over here and we'd check it out and sure enough it would be somebody's boot from another team so it's it's mind-boggling that we didn't find this kid earlier just on a, a, a humorous side note this is actually pretty funny one of the team members uh on pemi has a theory because uh, you have this kid, 
who disappeared for two or three days and then was found on trail. Uh, I'm giving away the secret here, but he was found on trail yeah. and he doesn't quite. Is this theory aliens? Yes. <laughs> Alien abduction? I, you know that why? would be my guess too. He, his, because there was another big search that happened a few weeks after this and it's the same circumstance. The guy's off trail, he's back on trail and he has no recollection of what happened. Like they wiped his memory. I, I like the way this, this guy's thinking. Isn't that we funny? We gotta get him on the show. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, I was right on that one the second you said he, he has, I, this guy has a theory. I was like, I know what he, where he's going. <laughs> oh yeah, this kid is so funny. It's actually Rusty Talbert who uh, owns New England Climbing Center up in uh, Littleton. He's oh, nice. he's a brilliant kid. He's really funny, and he's actually a, a Dartmouth alumnus too. So I spent Saturday night scouring the Baker until sunrise with him, and he was on one side of the river. My team was on the other side, and we went down three miles or so. So anyway, an amazing, challenging search. Yeah, and then he was he was eventually located um, like later in the day, right? It was actually Monday morning. The searchers okay. returned and resumed at about nine o'clock, and by if I remember correctly, about nine thirty, boom, there he was walking straight down the trail barefoot, and yeah, they yeah. knew right and away it was. That's him. a common thing too, by the way. We'll we'll talk about search and rescues. Many people end up barefoot, so mm, yeah, um, happened on the uh, Franconia Ridge. I don't know what Ridge. the deal is with that. Yeah, recently yeah, with those yeah. trail runners. They found him, and uh, Northwoods was there. They caught that. We had to send up a pair of boots because he was barefoot. So for him to walk that last mile back down, one of our team members ran up and got boots delivered. They brought him back down. The other teams had turned around, so many of us were already back at the lodge when he arrived, and his family were there, and um, other students that were out there looking for him the whole weekend as well. So it was quite a lovely reunion. Yeah, yeah. I saw on the show the the parents were really, really emotional when when uh, when when he returned, which I get. I mean, I you know I have three daughters myself, and I can only imagine what they were going through. Yeah, yeah. That was a beautiful moment. I'll, I'll never forget the sound of um, the mom's tears of joy echoing through the mountains. That's the one thing the TV show doesn't really capture, Mike. Um, her cries were literally just echoing and reverberating and it was just oh it like seared your heart like oh my god this is amazing yeah i can imagine it's it's a scary thing so he's out two nights i remember like people talking about it on social media and you know usually if somebody's out one night that's not good if they're out two nights you're like uh this is not going to end well mm. so it's it's crazy but what, so then the, when when the rescue's over what do you do you you guys all go out and have beer and celebrate or do you just go home and go to bed <laughs> probably crash right yeah, sometimes we do but uh in this case we were so wiped out because we had had training and then a rescue and then a search i mean it was a hell of a weekend searching overnight just wiped us out we just went home and sometimes there'll be a post mission debrief sometimes that's, that's in person if you're dealing with a recovery you know body recovery other times it's just an email saying hey listen if you were affected by this and you're having trouble reach out to us we have chaplains to talk with you or you know any support that you need in this case yeah, it was a good outcome and uh we were okay we were just tired yeah and no, i can imagine that's that's a and Dartmouth. That's a, a, a nice long, long nap. Yeah, I can only imagine the uh, <laughs> you know, the fallout on the Dartmouth outing club. I think I saw there was some sort. There was either a lawsuit or somebody got fired, or I don't know what happened. But I can only imagine that it, it was probably pretty stressful for the leader of that outing club to to go through that as well. Oh, sure. There were people that resigned apparently. 
the cost of the search was like 50 to 60K. And Dartmouth... Yeah, that's a drop in the bucket for Dartmouth's endowment. No problem. <laughs> They'll cut you a check. Yeah, sure. So they, they ended up paying that. And, you know, I really haven't heard much about it since then. I haven't really caught up with any of the, the after tremors and whatnot. So, but another good outcome, thankfully. Yeah, no, it was cool. I enjoyed watching that episode. And I will, uh, we'll, we'll link that episode in the show notes so that people can check it out. And, uh, mm. you know, I, I think we're hiding your identity, but, you know, just, just be aware that Stomp is, is prominently featured as one of the, the rescuers on the, yeah, it's, on the show. That's really funny. I'm the quote unquote experienced volunteer. Nice. Yeah, a new fishing game officer was being interviewed, and he mentioned that I have the assistance of an experienced volunteer. So it sort of forced Northwood's Law to focus on my storyline. It was really funny. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. So cool. That was a good episode. So we we covered the four thousand footers. We talked about a bunch of search and rescue stuff. So thank you everyone for listening and. If you enjoyed the show, uh, please follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the 4,000-footer list or the search and rescue events that we discussed today, we'll add those to the show notes um, on the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue Call show pages, which can be found on Facebook and Instagram. And then we'll look forward to joining you next week as we continue our Intro to New Hampshire hiking series with a discussion about the 52 with a view list. So until next time, I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Only one hill! Here's Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 